praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord, or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Those are the first five verses of Psalm 106, the first 18 verses of which form the psalm appointed for today, Monday, February the 21st, 2022. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with me today. We've uh, finished up our look at um, Isaiah's messianic prophecies, and now we're going to, in this last leg of the journey of Epiphany, we're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. Today we're going to be in the first chapter, the first 14 verses um, and then we're going to be in continuing well into Second Corinthians chapter one, the first eleven verses there, and in Matthew's gospel, the fifth chapter of the first twelve verses, which are the Beatitudes. So as we move into this story of Ruth, I've spent a lot of time over the last several months actually in the book of Ruth. There's just so much there, and I, and I've just been um, delighted to to see to read and comment on that. Um, and so it's, I'm looking forward to studying it with you during this next little bit of time. And it's, um, there's so much in there that it's impossible, really, for me to comment on everything um, that, that's there. And so you're going to get kind of an overview as much as I possibly can with it. Um, so we'll see how we get through this one uh, now. So... We've got, it begins with the story of a family, right? So in the days when the judges ruled, so this is before, therefore there was a king in Israel, so it's before, we know it's before Saul's time. There was a famine in the land. And a famine in the land was always the result of some sort of disobedience. The people were under some sort of discipline whenever there would be a famine in the land. Otherwise, they were to live in a blessed place. And so we're already aware there's something wrong in Israel. And a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, the, the, the man who leaves is abandoning his people. And there's a Jewish tradition that, that this family was a very important family in the area. And so it was doubly wrong for him, for this family to leave and, to go, and particularly to go to the land of Moab to sojourn there. Um, there he, he's leaving Israelite land leaving his ancestral land and go into what would is seen as a cursed group of people. And they're cursed for multiple reasons. And so um, Balaam and Balak, those are Moabite names. Now, how was the, what was the formation of the Moabite nation or the origination of the Moab, Moabite nation? Well, it's when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed and they come out and Lot and his two daughters are in a cave hiding because the wife was turned into a pillar of salt. So they, believing that maybe we're the only people left on earth, the daughters do, um, maybe we should sleep with dad and continue on the human race. And so one of the daughters who sleeps with, um, with her father here becomes the mother of the Moabite nation. So that's where Moab comes from. So, so to go to Moab, which is a land of sexual immorality and a place where, where there is no loving kindness in Moab, uh, they're the first ones who come up to fight. They want to fight against the Israelites. They won't let them pass through their land. And so there's an animosity between the two nations. 
that's been there a very long time. So the name of the man was Elimelech, and Elimelech means something like, my God is king. And so it, the Jewish tradition points to his name um, being um, indicative that he is an important man there. And so when he, this important man leaves the people in time of crisis, it, it's his condemnation in that. And his wife's name was Naomi, which means pleasant. And the names of his sons were Malan and Killian. And basically that means sickness and failure. I mean, I'm not sure how many people would name their children Malan and Killian if you knew that name of that. And they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. So they didn't just go there, they remained there. They spent time there. They they settled there is a way of saying it. So they weren't they they found it hospitable enough that they decided that they would stay in that place. But Elimelech the husband of Naomi died and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, the name, which they never are supposed to do. Never ever ever. I mean there's so many things here that are wrong in this that that are not obvious in in every way, but they definitely should never have taken Moabite wives. There was a strict prohibition against the taking of of, of Moabite wives. Uh, the name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about 10 years in Moab. And both Malan and Killian died as well, so that the woman, Naomi, was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So now the Lord is back. He had the fat, the... Uh, the season of famine is gone, and now she's ready to go back. She's been in the fields working in a way that her daughter-in-law Ruth will be working in the fields uh, in Israel as well. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. Now, Moab is not very far, by the way. I mean, you're just talking about on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in some ways. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. In other words, you've shown kindness to my sons and to me. And nobody would have expected that out of a Moabite. <clears throat> the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And that's Naomi's desire for her daughters-in-law becomes rest. It is the, the thing that matters to her more than anything else in all this. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, no, we'll return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? And that, and that was sort of the, the, um, the Israelite custom and tradition and law was is that, that they would have the right to marry a replacement uh, husbands, essentially. <clears throat> Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they have grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? There's no possible way you're going to wait, you know, 20 years for me to have a child or much less have two. No, my daughters, for it's exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And so she sees all of this as sort of the Lord punishing her. 
Um, it's it's a blessing, obviously, that she's alive and she has two daughters that love her, but she sees this as punishment from the Lord, the, the death of her husband and her children. And who wouldn't see it that way? I mean, that's not an unfair way to to parse that. And, and it's also a legitimate reason that there's a legitimate reason to say it, because you abandoned your people in time of need and you were leadership people there. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And that word clung is the same word, it's a root of the same word, that you get in um, Genesis 2, 24, when it's said that, that it's meant for a man to leave his mother and father and cleave to his wife, cling to his wife. It's the same word. And so it's, it's, there's this sense of marriedness in the relationship between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi, that, that she is, she's leaving her mother and father behind, and she's clinging to her in the same way that we see in Genesis 2.24. And so there's, there's a, a, a leaving the past behind that's clearly in view here and clinging to a future. Now, I have no idea. I mean, if you can, you can look at this story a million times and never see a single reason why um, Ruth would do this. I mean, they came there because there was a famine in their land, but there was not a famine in her land. And then they come there and all the men die. And even Naomi's bitter now. I mean, it's, you don't, it's hard to see a reason why she would be attracted to the idea of a return to where Naomi's from. It just doesn't sound like their God's all that great. But there's something, obviously, that she has seen here that causes her want to abandon her Moabite heritage and tradition and follow after her mother-in-law. In the gospel, Jesus is up on the mountain and uh, sees the crowds, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and we don't know if that's the 12, because I don't think we've had the 12 being called yet, and so who are these disciples? It could be a much larger group than the 12. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These are all countercultural things. This is, the poor in spirit don't typically think of themselves as blessed. But Jesus said, if you have, if you're, if you have a poverty of spirit, if, you're, if, you're, if you feel crushed under the weight of life, then blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Because you're, you're not in, in this blessed position that the world would recognize as blessed, but you're poor in spirit, and therefore you're broken over the, the condition of the world. For yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And again, this is not a mourning over a particular death. It's mourning over the state of the world. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Um, that's a countercultural value. Meekness had no um, benefit in Roman culture. In fact, it was the opposite of what a man particularly should be. Um, and so to say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth, it, it, it gives you a powerful picture of of Moses, frankly, because Moses said he was the most humble slash meek man on the face of the earth. But it didn't mean, obviously, what we think of as meekness. What we think of as meekness is somebody who will just say, well, I'll go along to get along in all cases. And that definitely didn't describe Moses, definitely doesn't describe Jesus. So it doesn't have anything to do with that attitude thing. It has to do with recognizing yourself as, as small and insignificant, but being willing to, to step into the breach and, and to stand for truth. We know that Jesus never had any value for anybody who wouldn't stand for truth, justice, and righteousness. And so meekness must mean something other than what we think of when it means meek. Um, it, it means that it's somebody who, who doesn't think too highly of themselves. <clears throat> 
and but those shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That's a very small number of people. I mean, I, I'm telling you, I, there are days when I do, but most of the time I couldn't say that, that that would describe me very well at all. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And again, this is what God says again and again with respect to the forgiveness of sins. If you forgive others, then you too will be forgiven. And that's what mercy would mean. And so if you forgive, then you'll be forgiven. If you have mercy on those who have sinned against you or done something to you, then you will receive in like kind from the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. It's important that we pursue these values. That's what Jesus is telling us, is cultivate these values in your life. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Um, We just whine and scream and cry out and say, you know, if there's going to be persecution, then that must mean it's, oh, it's the tribulation and God's going to come. And and, no, because persecution can't last long. That's American Christianity. You know, American Christianity is not prepared to suffer. There's no, there's no theological value, apparently, in suffering in the church. No, 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 no. You get what you get, the things you desire. That's the way this works. There's, there's no suffering involved. Paul wouldn't recognize much of American Christianity. And so here, Jesus says you're blessed if you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. In other words, what's happening is they're recognizing Christ in you. They're recognizing that you're a threat by pursuing a different set of values. And so you're going to be persecuted for that because your values don't line up with the ones that they've said are the most important ones. And then finally, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And I don't know anybody who feels that blessedness when that happens because it's not any fun. You know, I live in a place there where that's, uh, there's an antagonistic relationship to Christianity from a large percentage of the population in Asheville. And certainly when we met downtown, man, it, it was unbelievable, the nonsense that I had to put up with. But but I, I didn't fight with people, but I didn't consider myself blessed either. I certainly would argue with them and, and whatever, but but I, I didn't feel the blessing of that. But, but the reality is, is that we are blessed when we're persecuted and reviled that way. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And that's a good reminder there that this is who we are as long as we align ourselves with him then then we can expect persecution in the epistle paul is is reaching out to the corinthians and says that apostle of christ jesus by the will of god and timothy our brother so he's timothy is with him at this point to the church of god that's at corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of achaya grace to you and peace from god our father and the lord jesus christ And then goes on to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction. Tells you something about where Paul is and where he might perceive the church in Corinth to be as well. And and that is is that right now what I'm reaching out to you with is the, the blessedness of God who is the father of all mercies and comforts, who comforts us in our affliction. And Paul certainly went through a lot of affliction in his life, in his ministry, after he became a Christian. And you can see it over and over again in the book of Acts. And then ultimately in this book, in in the 15th chapter, he is going to enumerate the uh, suffering that he's had to go through uh, in, in this life. So he says, so that we're comforted in our affliction, so that... 
we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. And, and that's typically the place we minister from in our lives. Wherever God has ministered to us in our, in our brokenness and in our pain, it tends to be the place that we also then are most useful in ministry because we're able to sympathize with those who are going through the same kinds of things we have gone through. And it's part of the reason that the writer of Hebrews tells us for the resurrection so that we know that we have a Savior who doesn't stand aloof and apart from us, that he came and he suffered just as we do. And it's important that we know that. And, and Paul says we, this, the, the, our sufferings and the way God comforts us in our sufferings are meant for us to be ministers in that same way of that comfort. He said, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, which, like I said, this is, this is so countercultural to anything you would see in the American church today. Paul, Paul embraces the idea of suffering for the cause, and the cause of Christ. He embraces that that makes him a beloved of God and blessed of God, that he is, he is blessed to be so identified with Christ that he takes on some of the affliction and suffering and persecution in his own body that Christ took in his and so the world isn't done rejecting him, and therefore, because the world isn't done rejecting Jesus, then that has to be spilled out somewhere else. And so he says, I fill up in my flesh that which was lacking in Christ's suffering. And that's what he means, is that is the world hadn't gotten the pound of flesh and then some that it wanted, and so they're going to continue to come after those who follow and love him and proclaim him as the way, the truth, and the life. He says, so... For as we share abundantly in his suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort, too. If we're afflicted, it's for your comfort and salvation. In other words, it's because we can then comfort you. If we've been comforted by him, then it should be comfort for you as well if we're afflicted. So you can see this so that you can rest in the knowledge that that God loves us and our affliction is a witness to his love for us, believe it or not. And if we're comforted, it's for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. You see what the world's going to do to us, but you see what God does for us. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you suffer, share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Both those things exist simultaneously. God, he says, God's not just leaving me to suffering. That's not how this works. No, he's comforting at the same time. And he comforts by giving us his presence. When, when all this happened in the, to us in the last year, uh, Suzanne and I certainly went through a lot of um, emotional suffering, let's say, with, with a son in a coma and all that. But the reality is God was so good to us every single day that we were able to provide comfort to others because God was comforting us in our affliction. And he said, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So no matter what we were feeling, we knew we could count on him and believe in him. In the same way that Abraham believed God on the mountain at Moriah with Isaac. That he believed that God would provide for the sacrifice. And he believed that God would raise, was able to raise him from the dead because he was the promise of God. And so, so Paul's saying, look, we were crushed almost to pieces. But the reality is, is that, that we had to stop. It brought us to a place where we could no longer rely on ourselves because we assumed that we were going to die. And, but yet in that place, God came and God comforted us there. He delivered us from such a deadly peril. And he will deliver us 
I believe that he's done it, and I believe that he will do it. I was talking to a friend yesterday at the gym, actually. Her name is Wendy, and, and I was telling her some stories that where God had really comforted me personally. And, and as I told it, I, even though these things happened over 20 years ago, I began to weep. You know, there were tears that came into my eyes, and I don't, you know, I don't want to stand there at the gym and cry, but, but I did. And, and there's only one reason for that. It's because it, it was important to me yesterday— and every day to remember where God has comforted me and has delivered me so that I can remember that in such a way that, that I can bring that experience into the, into the present and project it into the future to say he has done and he will do. But it's important that we remember what he has done for us. And it's important that we tell those stories on a regular basis because we're not just telling them to the other person, we're telling them to ourselves. And we're reminding ourselves of the goodness of God. And so it's important that we do that in order that we can increase our own hope by remembering what he's done for us. On him we've set our hope that he'll deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. And and I know personally from this last year's experience how wildly important it is to ask people to pray when you need people to pray for you. Because it, it blessed us tremendously to know that there was this body of believers out there praying for us in the struggle we were going through, and they were in the struggle with us, and then at the end of that, they were able to rejoice with us in almost equal measure. Because I, I was there every day, and so I could see what was going on every day, and I could interpret things, and, and I, but I couldn't, the words that I spoke, I couldn't allow to get ahead of the, the rea- medical reality, but I, but I saw and believed that God was doing something that was ahead of the medical reality, but I couldn't say that. I mean, I did, but, but I didn't say it as clearly as I wanted to, because you can't translate that, that certain hope, you can't fully translate that by speaking it. It's something you know deep within. It's the peace that passes understanding. And so I believe that people did share in equal measure with us in the miracle that we received. But it's because they committed to praying for us and lifting us and the situation before the Lord. And in so doing, we became one people with one hope and one dream and one aim. And we saw it fulfilled in him. It's amazing what he will do if we will cling to him in the same way that Ruth clung uh, to Naomi, and in the same way Paul clearly always, always clung to Jesus.